0: Hey, and welcome to Engaged. I'm Paco, and I'm here again with Brian and Reggie. Yeah. And today's topic is going to be how we manage expectations uh, of students in our classroom. How do we make sure that our students are prepared to know what they should be expecting um, for most days as we go through? So uh, this is continuing on our series of kind of the beginning of the school year, getting our students into the groove of each of our classrooms. Again, you have uh, Community College. Reggie. We have a a traditional high school uh, focusing on AP studies with Brian and myself, a title one school with some IB students in there as well. So each of us kind of giving us, giving our perspective on on those uh, populations. Brian, how do you manage students' expectations at the beginning
1: of the year? So when I think about managing student expectations, generally have three points. Uh, I'm surprisingly amazed every year since I started teaching that students don't have expectations. Uh, even when you sincerely solicit ideas and feedback from them, it's as if they don't know what to or how to expect. So trying to coach them into that. Uh, the second thing is just sort of mechanics for the school. Some of the students come in from a variety of feeder schools we have home schools we got charter schools and private schools. I think probably nearly a dozen different feeder schools uh, come into my high school so wide range of expectations to set for how the school works and then also how an individual classroom sort of just uh, takes on a life of its own. And the third thing is I teach science. So generally speaking, uh, what sort of content, what sort of topics are they thinking are, is going to be taught? In science, no matter what the class is, even if it's chemistry or physics, the students want to know, what are we going to dissect? What are we going to cut up? And you have to explain to them, no, that was biology. and uh, physics, we're, we're not going to cut anything up. Uh, so uh, starting to manage about what we are going to do. And usually after a little bit of a ways in terms of that third point about content, about a third of the way into the course, the students are able to form some expectations and start to ask questions.
0: And I think uh, it's interesting that you, you notice this, this sensation that students walk into a classroom and they don't even know how to kind of monitor their own expectations. And, and I just wonder how much of that is, is a genuine kind of um anxiety just just moving into a new environment not really feeling or not really knowing what to feel from a teacher especially if we've been established at a school and we have reputations that, that, that the students know of us and how important it is as teachers to very quickly establish those expectations to to make sure that students are comfortable and know what they're going to experience on any given day I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Reggie something that we've talked about um in the transition from high school to community college is uh, the challenge of, of time, whereas high school teachers, we have a relatively large amount of time in which to get to know students. Um, how do you, how are you able to establish those, those, those norms and expectations but not, but you don't have as much time because how many class periods do you have in a semester basically, and how do you manage that challenge?
2: Well, it's very challenging to get to know students. I mean, I do have some students who I have uh, multiple classes in a row for uh, the programs that I have, but there are many students who are just one-off. I'll see them one time, they'll come in for 16 weeks, and that's pretty much it. So very, very quickly, I need to get to know them, get them to know me, and, so, and uh, make sure that they know what to expect. Uh, you know, it's, the, it's the, one of the best ways to help students be successful is to manage expectations and also one of the best ways to, um, to avoid conflict uh, mm-hmm. because one of the things that, that I, I find is that um, that one of the, I think the majority of conflict can be, uh, avoided if you had uh, if you if you are able to match the expectations and um, you know so one of the things that I try and do well, you know one of the things that I, I do on and off is that I have this uh, questionnaire to prompt a discussion discussion with my students um, and the questionnaire really has to do with what is what is our responsibilities as teacher and student or professor and student. I used to do this in high school as well. And so uh, it's like a scale and on one end of the scale you have, well the teacher has a hundred percent of the responsibility and on the other end of the scale you have the, that student has a hundred percent of the responsibility and then in the middle you have teacher and student share the responsibility equally. So what I would do is I would kind of call my students, I would ask them you know what do you think is your responsibility, what do you think is my responsibility and we kind of go over that as a way to kind of try and explain or to have them understand that hey you know you have a role in your own education i can i can come up here and i can you know i can I can lecture until the you know the cows come home, but if you don't do the stuff it is that you know, or I can have you engaged in all of these cool activities that I want to have you do, but if you don't really do what it is that you're supposed to do, then there's no learning is going to take place, right? So, so um, you know, one of the things as part of the discussion is that you know in any role. Um, no matter what it is, you have responsibilities. As a father, I have a responsibility. As a husband, I have a responsibility. You know, no matter what role you have, that as an employee of, you know, Chick-fil-A, you have a responsibility. Whatever it is, you have responsibilities, and so you must, you know, you must rise
0: up to and, and meet those responsibilities. Otherwise, stuff just doesn't get done. And I think that that's really important, and I think one of those expectations um, that we should be making sure that, that we're making students comfortable with is the opportunity for for struggle and the opportunity for failure and the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Uh, oftentimes I think that we've all experienced this student who if they think that if they just wait long enough, like if we ask a question <laughs> and if they just sit there and stare long enough, certainly the teacher will just give us the answer eventually. But no, we have to make sure that students Understand that one of the expectations of a class is that they are not going to simply breeze through. They're going to struggle. There is going to be some challenge. And that that process of learning is one of overcoming the obstacles and learning from those challenges and making sure that students are comfortable with that. And that's that's a hard thing, especially um, when, and this is a conversation that we've had several times, when sometimes... There's a sensation that the education system is designed more just to ensure that students succeed. And by the time they get to high school or community college, and we're trying to remind them that no, in the the quote-unquote real world, there will be challenges and you need to make sure that you're prepared to learn from those mistakes. So I think that that's an incredibly valuable lesson that you're trying to to instill in them, Reggie. Um, As far as my classroom goes, when I a lot of my kids uh, they, they they have they have become very very comfortable with the transactional nature of, of our educational system and that if I do x and y then my compensation will be this grade it's very very economic in that nature right where they expect that if they do just enough work they will receive a passing grade and that's that um, so something that I try to uh, to to instill in my, my students is the idea that learning is a process, not, not just a transaction. I'm here not just to provide you work that you complete and you get a check mark, right? That, that's what a lot of kids want because it seems pretty easy. But reminding them that learning is a process and the first time you do something, it's not going to be perfect. And then you're going to see that same exact thing that you have to do again. And my expectation is that you will do better on it the next time because since the first time we did it, we've had additional instruction and things like that. So looking at learning as a process is something that I um, try to uh, expose my students to from day one. And that that is a very important expectation, I think.
2: I think that that's really important as well because one of the things that I find is that students, um, a lot of times, uh, they want to do something once and they never want to see it again, right? They want to turn it in and they get their grade and then move on with the rest of their life. Well, you know, things don't really work that way in the real world, you know? You might have to revise something. You might have to take another stab at it. You know, a lot of times I might, you know, send something back to a student and then I do this um, in some of my classes as well that like, oh no, you know, there are some problems with this, and here are the specific problems, and let's go back and solve them. Right. And, um, and some students I find are very resistant to that, because that is so, they're so unused to that. Mm-hmm. But it's something that they need to get used to, because that's kind of really how, how the real world works. And a lot of times I'll tell my students, I don't care if you do it one time, or you do it a hundred times, but by the time it's done, it should be it should be right. You know, and then we have to define what right is, but
1: yes. Absolutely. I mean, commonly speaking, some, some things have to be done to the point where, for lack of a better word, there's mastery. Uh, you can't do it three-quarters of the way. Uh, so it has to be complete, and I don't want it unless it is complete. Uh, and then we can talk about it, that is, if you only bother to do half of the work. I mean, we both know you only did half of the work. It's not ready to be turned in. I uh, pass it back to the student and say, I don't want this until it's finished.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I I, I used to lecture my students about when they were in, in high school, when I was teaching in high school, is that, um, yeah, you know, a lot of times my students would say... Um, you know, if you you do 70% of the work, you know, I mean, by some thinking, you might say, hey, well, that's a C work, right? right? It's 70%. I got 70% of it done. But but really, in the world that I come from, right, is that, well, 70%, you know, no one's going to actually see what you did unless you get it 100% Mm -hmm. done. So, like, 95% 95% or 99% is equivalent to 0%.
1: So the story analogies I give my students multiple times during the year is uh, you have an ambulance driver and it gets you 90% of the way to the hospital. Is that an A job? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, I
0: think that all of those are, are, are in incredibly important ideas that from day one students know to expect that, that revision that, that they will see things multiple times, and all of these things are ongoing processes. It's not just a one and done type of thing. For this
2: podcast's Engaged Read, Brian will be talking about the New York Times bestseller, The Undoing Project, by Michael Lewis. Brian, what did you
1: find useful about this book? Michael Lewis, the author I've been reading for a few years because of sports related topics, he's. Uh, responsible for Moneyball and The Blind Side, which were both turned into very well-known movies. Uh, In this project, he was looking at a topic that was related to the idea of psychology and two of the founders of a particular field of psychology. And first of all, the narrative is very personalized, very biographical, and very compelling.
2: So, you said that this, uh, this story was about the struggles of the authors? Uh, talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so the two main central characters are Amos Tvorsky and Danny Kahneman, uh, and they were coming out of World War II as uh, Israelis, uh, founding uh, part of the uh, State of Israel in the 1950s and 60s, as it became, uh, started to become existent as an independent nation. Uh, so the idea of coming out as children out of World War II and then being part of the beginning of the Israeli state are quite significant challenges. It, it sounds like uh, this could be somewhat inspirational for, um,
2: for students, especially uh, many students uh, that we know uh, have lots of struggles, whether they're inside the classroom or outside.
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole idea is that uh, success isn't predetermined. Uh, That is, uh, people that become successful in their fields oftentimes had very rough childhoods and very rough adulthoods uh, that we all can relate to.
2: Absolutely so, and and uh, you know a lot of times you learn uh, more from your failures than you will from and your struggles than you will from your successes. So, um, well, tell us uh, tell us your second point um, that you that you found very useful about this book.
1: Yeah, so the whole aspect of uh, how their field was adopted by the field of of economics, and in fact they uh, wound up their work being recognized. And uh, Kahneman was still alive; he still is alive. Uh, and received the Nobel Prize in Economics. Uh, Tvorsky, unfortunately, died uh, before the prize was awarded, but he certainly would have been one of the recipients. But they took the aspect of uh, studying psychology in a very computational mathematical sense and were part of a field that was one of the first fields to do that.
2: And so you had mentioned before um, when we were talking before the podcast about uh, how this had to do with decision making. How so?
1: Yeah, so uh, very much what appealed to me uh, in terms of directly relating to aspects of classroom and instruction is how the order and sequence of events can uh, predetermine and create biases that we all have, even those people that should know better. And somehow those biases uh, might get in the way of learning, possibly? Yes, in terms of learning and in terms of decision-making. So uh, one or two of the examples, if I can share with you. So one example from the early 1980s, as people were becoming aware and uh, our aging population of the problems of smoking and lung cancer, is they did a study in which they presented this same information, but with sort of two different twists to it. That is, if you presented... Uh, someone facing lung cancer surgery with the idea that they would have a 90% chance of success after surgery, Uh, 82% of the patients opted for the surgery. If, however, you presented the same material but you said they had a 10% chance of dying from the surgery, only 54% of the people chose surgery. It's the same basic information, but the order in which the information was presented totally affects how the person makes their decision.
2: And that's funny, as as someone who teaches uh, communications and uh, advertising, uh, you know that that's that's really out of the advertising playbook, isn't it?
1: It is. And in a second project, a minor problem that they had was mathematically related that I'm going to do with my students this school year. Uh, is the order in which some mathematical problems are taken. Uh, The general example is uh, doing some simple multiplication, but if you start with small numbers towards large numbers, you get a different uh, prediction of estimates. So the classic example they did was 8 factorial, or 1 times 2 times 3 all the way up to 7 times 8. And if you start with the low numbers, or if you start with the high numbers, it totally changes uh, the value of the estimate. So that if you start with the low numbers, the average mean estimate was somewhere around 500. If you start with 8 times 7, the uh, average estimate was 4 or 5 times greater than that. And in fact, the true mathematical value is 8 times greater than that. So uh, it became very much a significant aspect. So this, you think that, that this is going to affect how you um, order the stuff it is that you, your, your material that you present in your classes? Absolutely. I think in terms of transitioning to the classroom, uh, it, great examples of students needing to uh, practice sort of a meta skill, a metacognitive skill, that is to be confronted with a bias, stop and readdress, and how do you look at alternative explanations
2: very interesting. Uh, for today's uh, podcast, Engage Read, Brian talked about the New York Times bestseller, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. Thanks so much, Brian.
1: Thanks, Reggie.
0: That's it for today's episode. Don't forget to check out our website at engagedmeaningfullearning.wordpress.com. Email us your questions at EngagedMeaningfulLearning@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.